I'm always humbled to be able to come before you and open up the Word of God and share its truths. And I hope that today will be yet another time when the Spirit of God can use His Word to truly minister to our hearts. This has been a very difficult time in our lives and, frankly, in the history of this country. The the coronavirus pandemic is very, very stressful to a lot of people, in fact, to all of us in one way or another. But for some, it's, it's really terrifying. It's a very frightening thing, especially to those who do not belong to Christ. The CDC, date, the CDC tells us that to date, the suicide rate continues to rise. It's up over 40% over the last 17 years. But it's now on the increase because of this pandemic. In fact, I heard the other day that the suicide rate is now killing more people than the coronavirus. So it's a very frightening thing. The Washington Examiner said, quote, more people died of suicide in a single Tennessee county last week than of the coronavirus across the entire state according to one local official. You know, my heart breaks for people that are that terrified, that are that hopeless. They need the Lord. They need the truth of the gospel. They need an understanding of the Word of God. But we know that apart from regenerating grace, the unsaved have no way of of understanding the things of the Spirit so as to be saved. It's all foolishness to them. They don't believe that man is a sinner by nature. They don't believe that they are somehow alienated from God and His wrath abides upon them. They refuse to believe that God is sovereign over all things, that He is holy, utterly separate from sin. They don't believe that He is therefore ordained to allow disease and death to ultimately demonstrate Not only his holy hatred of sin, but his great love for sinners. Because these things point to our need for repentance and reconciliation with him. And because of his great love, he allows those of us who are still alive to continue to live so that we will understand the truth of his gospel, to be saved and to live for his glory. And as believers, we understand these things, and we rejoice in these things. The pandemic doesn't cause us to panic, but rather it causes us to celebrate the triumphant hope that we have in Christ. And therefore, I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, Pandemic Panic versus Triumphant Hope. Because we know Christ and we understand His Word, we don't complain to God or challenge His fairness or His goodness. We understand what the prophet Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, for example. Beginning in verse 37, he says, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Obviously, no one except the Lord. He went on to say, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? And obviously we shouldn't. And so we rejoice in the grace that God has lavished upon us, even in the face of great trials that can make our lives miserable, that can make our bodies sick, and perhaps even bring us to a place of death. And it's this triumphant hope that I wish to focus on as we come together this morning. So will you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me give you the context. Very important to understand this. In the day that this letter was written, the Roman emperor Nero who was a maniacal megalomaniac. He was like Adolf Hitler. But he was a man who had burned Rome to the ground so that he could rebuild it. 
And of course, this absolutely devastated Rome. People <laughs> lost their jobs, they lost their homes, they lost everything. They lost their places of pagan worship. And so they were absolutely apoplectic. They were full of rage at what had happened. And as a result, they were looking for a scapegoat. And Nero gave them a scapegoat in order to cover up what he had done. And he blamed it on the Christians. The Christians were already despised because of the way the public associated with, them, with the Jews. And of course, they hated the Jews. In the annals of Tacitus, Tacitus writes this, To get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. My friends, I must tell you that when you look at history and see what Nero and the Romans did to Christians, it causes this pandemic to absolutely pale in comparison. It is unbelievable to think what they did to so many people who love the Lord as we do. So the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are suffering because of all of this. The, the persecution is, is escalating in a world system that is energized by Satan, who hates Christ and who hates all who belong to him, and that's obviously the same today. And so these dear saints, many of whom had been run out of their homes, they were scattered all over. They needed encourage. They needed to be comforted. They needed to know not only how to survive, but how to thrive in the midst of their suffering, how to avoid bitterness, how not to lose hope and faith and love and joy. And of course, the key to that is always to set your mind on things above rather than on the things of this earth. In fact, in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that we need to think on whatever things are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. And of course, this is the key to somehow trend send all of the difficulties that we find ourselves in in life, especially something as tragic as this. This is, you might say, the key of promise that Christian had. Remember in Bunyan's The, Bunyan's the Pilgrim's Progress, this was the, the key of promise that unlocked Doubting Castle so he could be free from giant despair and his wicked wife distrust. And so this is what we need, to be reminded afresh of the promises that we have because of what God has done for us. So Peter begins his letter by reminding the saints of, of the ineffable blessings that God has given them and also to remind them of who they are in Christ, to remind them of their identity as Christians and therefore remind them of the manifold privileges and promises that are theirs. And I, I must remind you that Peter writes this with full knowledge that at the end of his life, he is going to be crucified as Jesus promised he would be in John 21. Peter wrote this letter around 65 AD. He was martyred around 67 AD. So he knew that this would be his manner of death for almost 40 years 40 years of life and ministry. How would you like to serve Christ all of those years knowing in the back of your mind that this is how you would die? And we know, according to tradition, that before Peter was ultimately crucified, he was forced to watch his wife be crucified. And it is said that he knelt before her and kept telling her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord until the Lord took her home. And then when it was his turn, he asked that he be crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to even die in the same way as his beloved Savior. So with this background, 
Here's what Peter says just a couple of years before his martyrdom. 1 Peter 1. I want to begin with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Then he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. My, what a doxology of hope. You know, most people today know nothing of this kind of hope. They live their lives with no sense of meaning or purpose. They just go about their daily lives seeking whatever pleasure they can find. No assurance of life after death and what's going to happen. No lasting joy. Life is merely a, a prison, frankly, for most people. A prison of despair and despondency about the future. And people will employ every means possible to somehow escape the reality of all of this, to alleviate the pain of of hopelessness. They especially turn to drugs and to alcohol and, and entertainment and, of course, all of the false religions that Satan provides. And it's fascinating to see how this pandemic that we are experiencing has exposed the utter inability of all of those things to bring lasting joy and stability and purpose in life. You would think that Peter, living under persecution and the certainty of crucifixion, would have been depressed, would have been, frankly, in a place of despair. But no, we don't see that at all. He's filled with hope. He's filled with joy in the Lord. If I can put it in a practical way, Peter did not need a happy hour. He did not need to get high and get stupid in a fool's paradise to somehow find a little happiness and gain a little relief from the pressures of life. No, no, no. He was happy in the Lord. And for the believer, our happy hour is called a worship service. Talk about happy. My soul can just get lost in the wonder of God's sovereign grace and His glory and His love that awaits me on the other side beyond the veil. And I'm sure you will agree, those of you that know and love Christ. Moreover, the indwelling Spirit of God causes us to literally have a subjective awareness of who we are in Christ. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, beginning in verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I might add that when we place our trust in Him, we receive His unabated attention and care. The psalmist describes this in Psalm 33, verse 18, where we read, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. 
The great plague that fell upon London in, 16, in the 1600s, especially around 1665, killed 100,000 people in seven months. It was so bad that they had to bury the dead in mass graves without funerals. Victims were forcibly shut into their homes to prevent the spread of the disease. Red crosses were painted on their doors with a plea to God that said, Lord, have mercy upon us. Imagine what a horror that would be. A man by the name of William Gurnall lived during that day. He was a great pastor and theologian. He lost six of his 14 children, most of them in childbirth. He lived with ill health his entire life, and he survived the plague. And here's what he wrote, quote, Hope fills the afflicted soul with such inward joy and consolation that it can laugh while tears are in the eye, sigh and sing all in one breath. It is called the rejoicing hope of Hebrews 3.6. He went on to say, truly hope is the saint's covering wherein he wraps himself when he lays his body down to sleep in the grave. My flesh, saith David, shall rest in hope. Well, this is what we see in the text before us. So here Peter encourages the persecuted saints that are scattered all around Asia Minor, spiritual aliens in a hostile world, and he is going to remind them, and by extension remind all of us, of the living hope that we have and the eternal inheritance that awaits us. And as we look at this briefly, I want to, first of all, focus on four things that emerge from the text. We're going to see the source, the power, the promise, and the certainty of hope. First, notice the source of our hope in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Who is the source of our hope? Who is the, the one that we should bless? Well, the answer here, here is the God, the one and only true God, further identified as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's fascinating when you think about it. God, as our Creator, is the Father of all men. We read about this, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 6. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. But we must understand that God is the spiritual father only of believers. We are not all God's children, as you hear people say from time to time. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 14, and also in verse 15, we read that only those who are being led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Only believers have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And for this reason, we are, Paul says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's astounding, isn't it, when you think about it, that our Father saves us from our sin, all those who come to Him through faith in Christ. He adopts us as His own when this happens. And at that moment, we're given that new birth. We're then adopted into His family. He makes us His spiritual children. And the Apostle John tells us in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And because we are his children, he has promised to care for us. He has promised to meet all of our needs. And this is important for us to think about during this pandemic Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 30. He says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? He says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. In other words, that's what preoccupies the mind and heart of unbelievers. But he goes on to say, For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So he says this, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I'm sure we can all say amen to that statement. Beloved, our Heavenly Father is the source of our hope. But no one can ever know the Father apart from knowing the Son. Jesus made that very clear in John 14, verse 6. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, he said, you would have known my Father also. Moreover, in, in, in John six forty four, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The term draw in the original language means to irresistibly compel, to take possession of something, to drag something. It connotes resistance. And why did the Father draw us to himself? Well, in order to reconcile us to him by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ, to forgive our sins and to impute to us the righteousness of His beloved Son, that we might enter into His presence, blameless with great joy for eternity. So back to what Peter says in verse 2 of chapter 1. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That God is merciful is such a precious thought. When you think about it, mercy is love in action. It's, it's God's goodness. It's the essence of His character, of His love, of His benevolence that He has lash, lavished upon us. Mercy is different from grace. Mercy changes our condition, whereas grace changes our position. Mercy addresses the misery that we experience. It's brought upon us by sin in this world, whereas grace deals with our guilt and, and the sin that has corrupted us and left us in such a dreadful condition. And what is this dreadful condition that we experience because of sin? Well, personally, for those of us prior to coming to faith in Christ, the Bible says that we're spiritually dead. We're alienated from God. We're enslaved by our sins. We're enemies of God. We're slaves of the kingdom of darkness. We're ruled by Satan, the prince and the power of the air. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read that, that we lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But the Apostle Paul went on to say, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Beloved, because He is merciful, the Father reached down and lifted us up out of the wretched sewer of our sinful state. And because of His grace, He not only forgives us, but He declares us righteous and gives us eternal life. And herein is the glorious source of our hope, our Heavenly Father had mercy upon us. He dragged us out of the pit when we were unwilling and unable to come on our own. And He lavished His love and every imaginable spiritual blessing upon us. But Peter goes on to describe the power of hope in verse 3. He says, according to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Beloved, herein is the power he caused us to be born again. We can't born again ourselves. The miracle of the new birth is what he describes here. This is the miracle of regeneration. When we are born of the Spirit, as we read in John 3, 8. And Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. He gives a little description of the rebirth of the human soul and spirit. There we read that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead that eternally transforms us gives us a new nature, an entirely new governing disposition. The old things pass away. The new things come. 
In James 1 and verse 18, we read that in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth. The verb can be rendered, gives birth, brought us forth. How did He do it? He goes on to say, by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. What an amazing yet unseen miracle this is, this new birth. Later, Peter will tell us in 2 Peter 1.4 that in Christ we become partakers of the divine nature. And dear friends, it is this new nature that empowers us and energizes us and sustains the hope that we have within us. It's the Holy Spirit that places within us an eternal flame. Later in chapter 1 and verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now think about it. What comforting hope this would have been to those dear saints scattered abroad. And thus, Peter calls our hope a living hope. It's not a dying hope. It is a living hope. Oh, child of God, what power we possess in the new nature because of what Christ has done. In fact, it is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what Peter goes on to say. Notice again in verse 3. He says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, we must understand that if Jesus had not arisen from the dead, we would have no hope. Our hope is a living hope because our Savior is a living Savior. If Christ has not been raised, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. But we know biblically that because we are united with Christ, whatever happened to Him is going to happen to us. You see, death has no dominion over us. And how do we know this? Because Christ rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 we read, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Herein, beloved, is that living hope that sustains us and encourages us. So Peter begins there by reminding them not only of the source of their hope and the power of their hope, but notice the promise of their hope in verse 4. You see, we, we do not hope in something that is trivial, something that is mundane. We hope in an inheritance. Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. The term denotes property, denotes possession. It's fascinating in Colossians 1 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul says that we are to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here Paul reaches back into the Old Testament by alluding to a spe the specific land allotments that were given to the Israelites when they entered into Canaan to possess it. You read about this in, in Numbers 26 and 33. Inheritance is a term that literally means a portion of the lot. You see, the Father has qualified or authorized us according to His grace to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Light, by the way, being a synonym for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And in this glorious kingdom, each believer will be given a specific portion of the total divine inheritance. My mind just explodes when I try to even imagine what this will be like. He's going to give us specific possessions and privileges spiritual blessings beyond our ability to comprehend. Colossians 3, verse 24, Paul says, Know that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Ephesians 1, 11, Because of the Father's great mercy, we have obtained an inheritance. Hebrews 9, and verse 15, Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. My, what a comfort this must have been to those beleaguered saints 
and what a comfort this should be to each of us. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, God has been pleased in His abundant mercy to prepare for His people an inheritance. He has made them sons, and if children, then heirs. He has given them a new life, and if a new life, then there must be possessions and a place suitable for that new life. A heavenly nature requires a heavenly inheritance. Heaven-born children must have a heavenly portion. Now, I want you to notice in the text there are three characteristics of our inheritance. In verse 4, we read, It will be imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. Imperishable simply means that it will be not subject to corruption, not subject to destruction. There's no vulnerability to decay or to death. No one can steal it. No one can destroy it. And he says it is also undefiled. That it means it is, it is unstained. It is, it is uncontaminated. It is unpolluted by sin. And then finally, it will not fade away. In other words, it will never diminish in its beauty. Unlike a rose that blooms and displays the breathtaking splendor of its petals for a few hours, our inheritance and the magnificent glory that will be a part of that will never fade away. An amazing thought. Oh, dear child of God, what an inconceivable splendor awaits us, all because of the Father's mercy. And herein, number four, is the certainty of our hope. Notice the end of verse 4 and verse 5, we read that, that it is reserved in heaven for you. The term reserved was a, a military f- uh, term. It, it was used to describe a, a garrison of soldiers that would vigilantly guard and defend uh, some precious possession. And, and by the way, the grammar in the original language indicates that this is something that already exists and is currently being carefully guarded. Indeed, our glorious inheritance is, is guarded by Almighty God and His angelic hosts. So neither the enemy of our souls nor His fiendish demons nor human stupidity or sin can ever steal this from us. Our own foolishness can never forfeit or exchange or renounce our salvation because, verse 5, we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He is the one, according to Jude 24, that is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. And it's for this reason the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1 and verse 6, I am confident of this very thing. And what is that? That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul expressed the same kind of unwavering confidence of his future inheritance When he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To, To Him be the glory forever and ever. Beloved, where our greatest joy will be will actually be experienced in the presence of God Himself. He is the great joy of heaven. In thy presence is fullness of joy evermore. Is there any wonder why Paul would begin this letter to these persecuted spiritual aliens by reminding them in the salutation that, that I read earlier where, where there's, there's these great truths of, of our election that he says that you're, you're chosen, you're sanctified, you're sealed, and you're blessed. He begins there and then he breaks forth into this magnificent doxology expressing the source and the power and the promise and the confidence of our hope. I mean, all of that is just icing on the cake. I want you to notice that there are five reasons we have to to rejoice. First of all, because number one, our salvation is secure. 
verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice. By the way, that's a, a, a present tense verb. It means that it's, it's an ongoing, never-ending, perpetual joy and happiness. But, but what are we rejoicing in? Well, the answer was in verse 5, that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved, there is no greater power than the power of God, and it is that power that guards the inheritance that He has given us, that He has secured for us, for those that He has ransomed by His very blood, His redeemed that He has purchased, His adopted children. Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. What an amazing thought, how he holds on to every believer. He went on to say in verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Beloved, this is the great source of our rejoicing. This is why he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And of course we rejoice. If it were us up to us to somehow save ourselves, we would be forever lost. Moreover, if it was up to us to somehow keep ourselves saved, we would not be able to do it. But it is God who secures us. And it is His indwelling Holy Spirit that seals us and guarantees our salvation, that pledge of our inheritance. We read about this in Ephesians 1, verse 13 and following. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. He goes on to say, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And then he goes on to tell us in chapter 4 and verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, I can rejoice because of this as we all can. So Peter continues his profound words of encouragement. Your salvation is secure. In this you greatly rejoice. But also, number two, rejoice because we have a faith that is proven. Notice the end of verse 6, into verse 7. He says, again, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. And here Peter reminds us of the difficulties of our life, uh, all of those heartbreaking things that can steal our joy, certainly severe persecution for these dear people, the loss of, of income, loss of job, martyrdom, inhumane torture inflicted upon their children in front of their very eyes and their, and their spouses and, and just unimaginable suffering. But Peter is asserting here that even in the face of trials such as this, there is a purpose, and that is to prove our faith. The term proof is a term that was related to metallurgy. Uh, when, when heat is used to refine metal through burning away all of the impurities, leaving only the most precious, pure metal. And here what he is speaking of is, is the fires of adversity, how trials are the fire that God uses to burn off the impurities of spiritual immaturity and, and leave only a pure and precious faith. He says, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Dear friend, think of some trial you're experiencing in your life, perhaps right now. Some great adversity that is breaking your heart, perhaps. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's some relational problem or a financial problem. Well, what Peter is saying is that God is in these things. He is using these things even to prove the genuineness of your faith. How dangerous it is to shake our puny little face and 
our fist in God's face and, and kind of accuse Him of being unfair and unkind, to deny Him, to throw a tantrum, to sulk and whine because we don't get our way, or to be like Job's wife and curse God and die. Certainly we don't do that, but rather we trust Him, come what may. We trust Him and we say again, God, we know that You are a sovereign and a good and faithful, loving God. You delight in mercy. I just recognize that You love me even in the midst of this trial. And I pray that You will help me by the power of Your Spirit to understand great truths of who You are and perhaps what I need to be, what I need to learn in the midst of this. I understand that you are a loving father and that you are pruning the vine of my life that I might bear more fruit for my good and ultimately your glory. Dear friends, if that is your character and your conduct, you're going to experience spirit-animated joy deep within your soul. Because, as in the fires of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord himself will be revealed in the context of your suffering. And you will experience the power of his presence in the furnace. And he will prove himself powerful to you in ways that you cannot imagine. And therein is the source of our joy. And then on top of that the internal awareness of the presence and the power of the triune God is made manifest by the power of His Spirit that indwells us. And to offer further insight, notice how He reminds them of four aspects of trials. First of all, they're short-lived. Notice verse 6, even though now for a little while. It could be translated for a season or a short period of time. We know that the Apostle Paul suffered enormous persecution and he reminds us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Then he adds this, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Well, trials also are not only short-lived, they have a purpose. Notice again in verse 16, he says, if necessary. That's why it's important in the midst of trials not to ask why, but to ask what. We don't say, God, why are you doing this? We say, God, what can I do to worship and glorify you in the midst of all of this, that I might enjoy the fullness of your power and your presence in my life so that I not only will experience the joy of being in relationship with you, but that I might be a light that shines in a dark world that others might see Christ through me. Paul described his suffering along with Silas in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 as afflictions for which we have been destined. You see, God has a purpose in our trials, doesn't He? It might be to expose our pride, to teach us humility. It might be to reveal some blind spot in our life that we're not aware of. It might be to just loosen our grip upon this world. It might be to deepen our love and dependency upon Him. It might be to chasten us for some life-dominating sin. It might be to demonstrate to others what genuine faith looks like as we continue to worship and love and serve Him in the midst of our crucible of grace. It might be to teach us patience and perseverance. And whether we know why, what He's doing or not, and most of the time we don't, we know that the proper response is to trust Him in the midst of it all. And experience, therefore, the joy of proven faith. Also, he tells us that the trial may be painful in verse 6. Even, he says, you have been distressed. You have been distressed. Distressed means to cause great sorrow, to, to put to grief. And it, it denotes anguish of body and soul. Not just physical, but mental and emotional pain. 
By the way, the ridiculous idea that God wants us all to be prosperous and pain-free is a dangerous lie that has seduced so many people. Routinely in life, God finds it necessary for us to be distressed by various trials to prove our faith. Also, another aspect of our trials, not only are they short-lived, they have a purpose and they're painful, but number four, they're diverse. Notice he says it's the end of verse six, he describes them as various trials. In other words, they're diverse, they're manifold, they're many-colored is the idea. Trouble comes in all sizes and shapes, all color and kind. And they usually come when we least expect it. Who would have ever thought, even three months ago, that we would be going through what we're going through today in this pandemic? So what Peter is reminding the saints, including all of us, is that suffering and trials are short-lived, they're purposeful, they can be painful, they're going to be diverse, but God is going to use them to separate genuine faith from superficial faith. So Peter reminds us that we can rejoice greatly because we have a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven. And then thirdly, we see him describe a commendation that is inevitable. And we can greatly rejoice in this regardless of, of, of what we're experiencing because we can anticipate the, the acclamations of praise and honor that God will give us. At the end of verse 7, he says that the proof of your faith, many, he says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What an astounding thought to faithfully serve and praise God in this life, and then to have Him reciprocate in serving and, and praising us in glory. Oh, child of God, this will be that great day of revelation. That's the term that is used. Apocalypsis, it means unveiling or revealing. When He will declare to His faithful servants, well done, good and faithful slave, Matthew 25. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This will be, according to Romans 2, beginning in verse 6, when God will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who, by perseverance and doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Then he adds glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Can you imagine the joy that this must have produced within those beleaguered saints, that we all have a promise here of a, of a threefold commendation, one that is inevitable, praise and glory and honor. I mean, what a motivator to holy living, to trusting in the Lord. It reminds me of our Lord's parable of the expectant steward. Remember in Luke 12, verse 37, he said, Blessed are those whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. That is utterly incomprehensible. Well, not only... Do we rejoice because we possess a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven, a commendation that is inevitable, but finally, we rejoice because we have a love that is unseen. Notice verse 8, and though you have not seen him and you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hear Peter being aware of his own failures, recognizes just the power of obedient, tested faith. And here he praises the saints for their ongoing love for the Lord. Beloved, this is the kind of love that, that proves the genuineness of our faith. This is more than a sentimental love, but a love that engages the mind. He says those that believe in him. And also it engages the will, those who obey, those who persevere. And because of this, again, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Inexpressible means unspeakable. It means ineffable, too wondrous to even utter from the lips. 
This is what happens when the mind is so overwhelmed with a sense of the divine mystery of what God has done, is doing, and will do for us that we can't even speak. You see, these are thoughts that exceed our ability to communicate. And because of this, we rejoice even in the midst of our trials. So we have a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven, a commendation that is inevitable, a love that is unseen. And then he closes with the idea of a deliverance that is in progress. And with this I close. Notice verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The term obtaining is fascinating in the original language. Its root means to receive what is due or what is deserved. And here, he's speaking of presently receiving for yourselves as the outcome of your faith, what? The salvation of your souls. Not that we deserved it, but because of what Christ has done, we will receive it, and thus it is deserved. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. Right this very minute, Regardless of what you're experiencing in your life, you need to understand that your deliverance, your salvation is presently in progress. God is up to something every moment of your life. We are presently receiving for ourselves as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I would challenge you that if all of this is foreign to you, then you need to come to saving faith in Christ so that His Word will become alive to you and so that you can experience the power and the presence of the living Christ within you. But those of you that know and love Christ, I trust that you will meditate upon these magnificent promises. And instead of panic in the midst of a pandemic, you will find your soul being animated with triumphant hope. And I might add that this kind of hope and this kind of joy will be far more contagious than the virus. Other people will see it and they will catch it and hopefully they will ask you to give an explanation of the hope that is within you that you might be able to point them to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that animate our hearts to praise and to worship, to bring, that, that just brings such joy to the very core of who we are, even in the midst of these great difficulties. I pray for those that do not know Christ, that by your grace you will draw them unto yourself and save them. And for those of us who know and love you, may these truths produce within us an ever-deepening love for you and passion to live for your glory, to be salt and light in this very decaying and dark world in which we live. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.